Jericho Road is a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church. It's a Sunday school class that happens at 9.30 on Sunday mornings, and you're welcome to join us. These days, we're studying the world of Jesus, and we hope to get you thinking about old stories in a new way. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Jericho Road. We're going to call this Chapter 3 of The World of Jesus, Episode one, and if you've got any questions for us, we would love to make this podcast and Sunday school class more interactive. You can send questions to me at Saint R. Webster at Saint Luke's.com. Spell out Saint R. Webster at Saint Luke's.com, and we will incorporate your questions into future episodes or be sure to answer what you're thinking. So we hope that there'll be lots of new questions in this new year. So for the next couple of episodes, I want to talk about uh, the Bible and culture and barriers that happen when we don't understand it. I I like to say that, that the Bible can be hard to read and it can be hard to understand when we don't live in their world. We're separated by time, of course, but we also don't think like Bible people. And so I want us to uh, consider that water is very, very, very important in understanding Bible stories. Water, that's a cultural difference between the people living in the Bible and us living here today. I'll give you a good example. Uh, Alabama folks don't have to worry about water because we've got so much of it. I learned somewhere that of the 48 contiguous states, uh, Alabama has more nav- navigable water, that's <laughs> hard to say, uh, than any other state except for California, which is remarkable because we're half the size of that state. And even the great seal of Alabama has all these little rivers uh, marked into it to show that we've got lots and lots and lots of water. Okay, in the Middle East, in the world of Jesus, not so much. I'll show you a picture. Pretty little stream. It's actually from a Bible place. Uh, this stream is between a place called Chorazin, which is mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew, and the village of Capernaum, where Jesus spent lots of time, which is to say that Jesus would have seen a little stream like this one nearby as he walked in the fields with his disciples and did his ministry. He would have seen something very much like this, but only in the winter. Okay, that's a winter stream. I took that little picture uh, in January of last year, uh, which means that that's the time when you have rain and it's green and there's little rivulets of water running everywhere. But very, very soon, that water is going to be going bye-bye. It's going to be gone and it's going to be hot and that little stream is going to dry up. And that's the case of all these little streams in Israel. It's just going to get hot and dry like a desert. So for that reason, in modern Israel... Not a drop of water is ever wasted. They have all this technology to desalinate seawater. They use wastewater from all the cities in order to green the desert. And pretty much everybody's got a cistern somewhere to catch rainwater up on the roof. But then as now, you've got good water and you've got bad water. And the problem with the cistern is that water can just sort of sit in there and get kind of flat. In a biblical cistern, it could also get kind of muddy or skunky so that fresh water is the best water, water from a a well or a stream or maybe fresh rainfall or a river. there's a word in the Bible that I really love. It's, it's, it's a layered word, and it's, it's a lovely word for fresh water, and it's called, um, it's called a live water. Uh, Hebrew words can mean many things, but fresh water means a live water, or even better, living water. This is living water. What would living water be? Well, I've got a little illustration from my childhood that might help us. Um, 
when I was a little boy, long summer days, I would fish at this pond near the house with my cane pole and my crickets. And if there happened to be a summer rain, sometimes the water would wash up over the dam into the stagnant little pond on the other side down in the low part of the field. And in that stagnant water, occasionally fish would, would wash over as well. And I would go and, and the fish were, were, were suffocating. They did, the water had no oxygen left in it. It was dead water. And so I would scoop the fish up, little brim mostly, uh, and men as if I could catch them. And I would toss them back into the deep uh, water, the good water, the living water, where they could where they could breathe and they could swim and they could live. So there's good water, there's living water, and then there's sort of skunky water uh, that you don't want. And so in the world of Jesus, over centuries, this living water, this fresh water, this alive water, also became connected with worship. I'll show you a picture of a ritual bath in Nazareth. This is on the street level of Nazareth. And I want you to remember, Nazareth is a super poor town, so they would only have one of these. Uh, It's called a mikvah, and fresh, alive water was used in a mikvah for the faithful to worship and to use water to wash. And the washing could be for conversion, it could be for healing, it could be for purification. But here's why I want you to look at this picture. There's only one mikvah in Nazareth, which means that Jesus was there. You're looking at a place where Jesus worshiped. You're looking at a place where Jesus washed. Gosh, when you go to a place like the Holy Land, you can find lots of places that evoke Jesus. You can go lots of places that were close to Jesus. You could go places that feel like Jesus. But every once in a while, and these are very rare, uh, you can touch something that he touched. You can see something that he saw. And so this mikvah is there, and it's very, very, very cool. I'll show you another picture that has to do with worship and water. This is the Garden of Gethsemane. Garden of Gethsemane never fails to just take my breath away because these trees are so old. I think when I first went there, I was expecting sort of a recreated Garden of Gethsemane, what it must have been like when he was there, kind of Garden of Gethsemane, instead of these old trees. And olive trees can live for a thousand years or more. So it's amazing, right? They're just these stately ancient living things, but what we think may be happening here is that the root system of these thousand-year-old olive trees are actually from the time of Jesus, so it's very possible that this organic matter was present at the time that Jesus cried under these trees and was arrested under these trees and dragged off to die beginning under these trees, which is remarkable because I believe that trees have memory. This is a living, this is not just a dusty rock or a mosaic uh, that's a witness to the presence of Jesus, but a living thing. Well, that's pretty cool. Well, in the last few weeks, and this is breaking news, archaeologists and scientists have found even something uh, more wonderful, I think, with regards to the site of the Garden of Gethsemane. Adjacent to it, at the foot of the Mount of Olives, they have found more ritual baths, more places of water, more mikvah. Um, the word Gethsemane means oil press, and so these mikvah were there for people working in the oil production business uh, for temple use. And for you to have an oil press for temple uses, one would have to purify yourselves all the time using these mikvahs, which confirms both the name, Gethsemane, it also confirms the place, which once again, science and the Bible are converging to show us that the people who saw this story knew what they were talking about. The people who lived this story knew what they were talking about. The people who wrote down this story knew where they were 
talking about and what they were seeing so that archaeology continues to delight us uh, with the drama, if you will, and the specificity of the Bible. Speaking of mikvah, okay, this is another cool uh, little shot. This is, I like to call this an industrial mikvah. It's on the southern steps of the Temple Mount. And in order to get your mind around the Temple Mount, I want you to imagine uh, the, uh, the village around our church, which is called Crestline, and, and it's probably got 35,000 people maybe at max, right? At least in the, in the surrounding area. And, and so, it's, so we've got a village and then put an SEC football stadium in the middle of it, just looming over the whole thing. And that's the Temple Mount in Jerusalem of Jesus' day. And, and at the time of the festivals, their population would swell from like tens of thousands to a million. And, and so this industrial mikvah would be there on the southern steps so that people could file through. Just imagine the turnstiles of a football game, file through, bathe ritually, get the business of worship done so that they could go up to the Temple Mount and do temple things. And then you've got these priests who are there regulating all this activity and they're called Baptists. So that John, Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, would be quite the rock star when he would leave this industrial religion and go down to the River Jordan, uh, down in the Judean wilderness, which is a story for another time about water, okay? But this is where John the Baptist uh, would do his work at this mikvah. Here's my point. Over centuries, it became inescapable. Water and worship would be interconnected. Living water would remind them of God's love for them. Living water would be a sign of God's care and God's, uh, God's protection and God's life, uh, the gift of life. And water is particularly important in the Gospel of John. John. Now, when I've done this podcast, I think most of my stories have come from the other Gospels. And before I talk about John, I need to tell you that they're just different. The first three are the same, and then John is different. It works like this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have almost all of Mark within them. So Matthew and Luke have Mark within them, which means that they're they're told from the same point of view. We call them the synoptic gospels because they they see the story with the same eye, if you will, the word optic is in there, uh, which means that the synoptic gospels tell the story of Jesus as a contrast between Galilee and Jerusalem. Galilee and Jerusalem. Uh, It's the Galilean ministry of Jesus, and then he travels to Jerusalem in order to die. And Jesus, in effect, becomes the Passover lamb for us, and those are our communion words. That's how the synoptic gospels tell the story of Jesus. That's a rough outline. And when I take friends to Israel today, I like to share that same shape so that they can live the story as they also look at things and and learn things about the Bible and Jesus. So we start in Galilee, and then we go to Jerusalem, and the contrast couldn't be greater. Look, Galilee is the same as it ever was, which is to say that it's beautiful, and it's safe. You don't really have to lock your door. And people up there watch after you. And Galileans love to tell stories. I like to say that Jesus was from Alabama because the culture of Galilee and our Southern culture are very similar. They love food up there and they love to laugh and they're quick to help and, and they're very fiercely patriotic and all the things that we all love about, about the region in which we live down here. And they're very religious, uh, all those things. And But what we have to do after we spend a, a few days or a week in Galilee is I've got to retrain everybody because I'm taking a group and I'm responsible for them and we're going down to the big city 
And you can't wander off in the big city and you've got to lock your door in the big city and you've got to be careful in the big city. And it's like big cities everywhere. Jerusalem, it's not Jerusalem's fault. There's no different than New York or Paris or London or New Orleans or any other big city that's going to have its, its wonders and its cultural uh, artifacts, but it's also going to have its dangers. And it was the same thing with Jesus in his time. And so Galileans always look down their noses at Jerusalem as being kind of a fast place, and Jerusalem always looked down its nose at Galilee as being full of yokels. And so that's the contrast that we try to show you. Not so much the gospel of John. John's gospel was written later. It's more reflective. It's a little circular, not as linear in its telling. But the But the quick story I want to tell you is that I'm beginning to appreciate that John's gospel fills in gaps that the synoptic gospels leave. Over the holidays, I treated myself and I read the Gospel of John from start to finish. It didn't take that long, 45 minutes. We all should read the Gospels that way from time to time because you see things that you would have missed otherwise when you separate it into little bits. What I noticed is that the Gospel of John feels like that you're already supposed to know the other ones. You're already supposed to know the other stories so that John can round it out. It's almost like Godfather Part (laughs) 2, really well told. But let's remember, Jesus went to Jerusalem every year of his life as a faithful Jewish person to the festivals. So while the synoptic gospels remember this long last journey uh, to Jerusalem to die as the Passover lamb, which is an incredibly important theological point, John's gospel remembers Jesus at worship in festivals, in Jerusalem, throughout his ministry, which is very different. In particular, John remembers Jesus in the festival of Sukkot. Sukkot. Now, let me talk about Sukkot for just a minute. Um, Sukkot is the third of the three festivals that God's people were required to attend. So you had the Passover, that's the first one. Then you had Pentecost, which is 50 days later. And then you had uh, Sukkot in the fall, and it's the fun one. And it's fun today, but it's nothing like they used to do back then. It's the fun one because it's a harvest festival and everybody can celebrate the fact that they got the work done and they got lots of food and it's very joyous and it went on for days and days. And then at some point, it also became not only a celebration of the harvest, but also a petition for, wait for it, water. It became a petition for water. And for that reason, because of the location of it, it's in the fall headed into the winter. For that reason, it was a reminder of what God had given them, but then what God would also give them over the winter, which is rain, so that they could grow more crops and they wouldn't die. And they could have those little streams, like that picture uh, that I showed you uh, to begin this podcast. Okay, so Sukkot was such a fun and important festival with that prayer, that anticipation that God would continue to provide for them just as he provided for them in the desert, in the wilderness uh, with, with Moses. They believed that God would always give them what they needed. For that reason, Zechariah, the prophet, had a dream that Sukkot would really be important at the end of time. Hold that thought. The prophets had this idea of something they called the day of the Lord, which simply means that Hebrews believed that God worked in time, but also one day time would end. And when time ended, that's not a scary thing. That's a good thing because we would have everything that we needed. All tears would be dried. We'd have lots of food. And so Zechariah probably just loved Sukkot so much. He, he realized that at the end of time, two things would happen. The Messiah would come. The whole world would be together under one king, one Lord, one religion, and they'd have all the water that they ever needed. So in Zechariah chapter 14, beginning with the 8th 
and ninth verse, this is what he dreams. On that day, living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea, and it shall continue in summer as in winter. Remember what we've learned about they don't have water in the summertime. So at the end of time, they're going to have all the water that they ever needed. It's going to go everywhere. And the Lord will become king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. And then we skip down to verse 16. Then all who survive of the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, to the Lord of hosts, and to keep the festival of booths, which is another word for Sukkot. Now, if we know this, and then we go to the Gospel of John, we can begin to understand what Jesus is saying, what John remembers Jesus saying. And in John chapter 7, Jesus is locating himself on the temple precincts at the festival of Sukkot. And this is what he says. This is John chapter 7, verse 37. It's all going to make sense now. Remember the promise of Zechariah. On the last day of the festival, Sukkot, the great day, while Jesus was standing there, He cried out, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and let the one who believes in me drink as the scripture has said, out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. Okay, here's what's happening. John knows this. In Jesus, the Messiah has come. In Jesus, Zechariah's dream has come true. In Jesus, there's water busting out everywhere. Sukkot is now The best of the festivals, the happiest of the festivals, Sukkot is busting out everywhere because God is in living color. Now, that's a story from Jerusalem. Let's look at another story about water in John's gospel and see that Sukkot doesn't just have to happen there and then. In John chapter 4, I'll show you an early Christian icon of the story of the woman at the well. John chapter 4 is the woman at the well. We have retold this story so many times. Uh, in Sunday school, we, I think we all know it, the woman at the water jar and Jesus talks to her. What we don't under, probably don't understand because we don't live in their world is this story comes as quite a shock because there are three good reasons why Jesus doesn't need to be talking to the woman beside the well. The first one is the fact that Jesus is far from Jerusalem and Sukkot. He's in Samaria, which is probably where he doesn't need to be because Hebrews didn't have a thing to do with Samaritans. In an earlier podcast, I talked about Samaritans as a parallel religion, very similar but distinct from the Hebrews. The Samaritans claimed to be the remnants of the old nation of Israel that was wiped off the map by the Assyrian army 700 years before Jesus' birth. And yet Hebrews living in the first century would call this a rather dubious claim at best. But the big no-no is that the Samaritans built their own temple on Mount Gerizim where this story in John chapter four is located. Uh, It's a huge no-no and it caused such a hatred between Hebrews and Samaritans that modern comparisons might be something like Northern Ireland during the Troubles or Sunni Shiite wars uh, that happened in places today like Yemen or terrorism. Uh, We might think of our own American Civil War. And these days I'm even wondering if the deep political divides uh, between between people in our own country who should be friends, who are separated, uh, remind us that there ain't no fight like a family fight. So when we read John chapter four, we need to remember that first of all, it is utterly groundbreaking and world-changing that Jesus would speak to a person of this religion and of this race. Well, that's the first barrier. 
The second barrier is this. It's noon when we're told that she's drawing water from the well, which is not the time you want to be there because it's darn hot, uh, but her own bad reputation demands it. She were told in the story in John 4 that she had five husbands, and now she's living with a man who's not her husband, so she's not getting any help, and she has to go to the well when no one else is around. And then the third barrier is this. She's a woman, and they're not supposed to be talking. So it's here. Remember the dream of Zechariah. Remember the declaration of Jesus on the last great day of the festival and remember the importance of living water, alive water, of fresh water and remember that Sukkot is busting out all over the place and now we can read John chapter four beginning with the ninth verse. It goes like this. See if you can hear it in a new way. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not have things in common with Samaritans. That's a polite way of saying they, they would go at each other's throats, right? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sukkot was happening here as well in Jerusalem. Sukkot is the fulfillment of a dream. Sukkot is binding people who would have been enemies into family, into friends. Living water is everywhere. Okay, that's one water story. Now, if that's John chapter four. If we go to John chapter five, and you'll start to see this, water repeats itself again and again and again and again. If you want to start and read John's gospel as a whole, you'll see water in John chapter two, John chapter four, John chapter five, John chapter seven, and then John chapter 21. And give me some time, I'll find some more water. But if you go to John chapter five now, you're going to see the picture that I'm showing you now. This is a pool called Bethesda. Now, what you're looking at is the remnant of a Byzantine church from the 5th century. That also means late Romans, something from the 400s. And as I've said in earlier podcasts, you can take these late Roman churches, these Byzantine churches, and you can often locate places that happen in the Bible. Sometimes it didn't work because they picked a traditional site, but oftentimes they would work off of oral tradition or they would work off the ruins of something that was here. And, and here in the northeast corner of the old city of Jerusalem is a pool that had long been associated with healing. Healing. Now, there's a suburb of Washington, D.C. called Bethesda that used to be a tiny little town, and it's not anymore Bethesda, named for this pool, uh, long associated with healing. And for this reason, Franklin Delano Roosevelt chose Bethesda as the site for the National Institute of Health. So that's the story. Bethesda means healing. It also means house of mercy or house of grace. And in the fifth chapter, we're told that Jesus saw a crowd of people and a man laying beside the pool of Bethesda. Now I'm going to give you a little background so that the story will make sense to you. Because this pool had long been associated with healing, this water had healing properties. Remember, water and worship are are interconnected in the Bible. A legend arose among the people who would wash there that an angel would fly nearby. And every time the angel would dip uh, his wing into the water and cause a ripple in the water, it's like everybody into the pool. And whoever got there first would be healed. I've had some friends tell me about the Grateful Dead song, Ripple in the Water, but I looked at the lyrics pretty carefully, and I'm pretty sure it's not about an angel. It's just about a rock being thrown into the pond. So you Grateful Dead fans could talk to me about that later. Uh, But this is a different ripple. This is caused by the angel wing. And so everybody in the pool. 
Now, with that background, you're going to see that there's a sad little guy who could never get there on time. And it's John chapter 5, verse 2. And I'll just read it to you. John chapter 5, verse 2 through 9. Now, in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, there's a pool in Hebrew called Bethzatha, it's Bethesda, which has five porticos. And in these lay many invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who'd been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd been there a long time, he said to him, do you want me to make you well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water stirred up. When I'm making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. Sort of like a little boy at a parade who can't get to the candy, right? Jesus said to him, stand up, take your mat and walk. And at once the man was made well and he took up his mat and began to walk. It's a beautiful story. Like the woman at the well, God busting out everywhere, Sukkot happening again and again, living water now replacing plain old water. I particularly like the choice that Jesus most gives the woman. Sir, give me this water, she says. Or the man, do you want to be made well? It reminds us that, that God wants something from us that looks more like a relationship and less than a religion. God is not merely some immutable laws uh, that we just simply live into like gravity. God is not merely some distant plan that was set before the foundation of the world and so that we just simply bump along and find out what's gonna happen. No, God wants us to ask. God wants us to live. God wants us to hope. God wants us to dream. God wants us to cry. God wants us to talk to him so that God can reveal uh, God's plan for us and for our life and to give us daily living water. But if you keep reading the story by Bethesda, it's also a sad story because there are always barriers, barriers within, barriers without, barriers that only God can overcome. In the case of the Samaritan woman, it was the barrier of culture and the barrier of religion. In the case of the man by the pool of Bethesda, it was a barrier of a lack of empathy, a barrier of invisibility, and also a barrier of the Sabbath. See, Jesus healed the guy on the Sabbath. It gets him in a world of trouble. And I love what Jesus says in John chapter 5, 17. Jesus answered them, My father's still working. I also am working. God in Christ is always watching, always working, always keeping up with us, always hanging on to us, always giving us living water. Which brings us to a couple questions in this podcast before we continue with water in the Gospel of John. Questions are this, how has God overcome barriers for you? Second question, what is your living water? Well, thank you, friends. I look forward to talking to you some more, and let's think about water in the Bible. Amen.